Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, as we return to our, our study and working our way through this Gospel. And we really come now and continue in a sense, come now to the pinnacle of this Gospel. The, the whole account of the Gospel of Matthew has been leading to these chapters, which comprise the last week of our Lord before he was crucified and raised, rose from the dead. I'm going to begin by reading God's word this morning in Matthew chapter 21, verse 18, and we will be examining 18 through 22 this morning. Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, his disciples were amazed and asked How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. In all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask God's help as we come now to study it. We pray, Lord, our Father, that you would help us now. This passage is striking to us. It almost seems out of place, dare we say. Of course, we know it's not. Your Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of these words, is perfect and wise. And you, Holy Spirit, had a purpose in giving these words here in this place. Help us to know that purpose and help us to know more of our Savior, Jesus, in his name we ask. Amen. I'm very thankful for the fan going over my head, but it's blowing my Bible pages around. And I'm to blame because I'm the one to ask that fan to be on. You're going to turn it off? Don't turn it off. I'll keep my pages down. All right, you can turn it off. That's fine. All right. Well, in the front of our bulletin, we read this morning beautiful verses from Psalm 48, verse 2. Beautiful in elevation, speaking of Jerusalem. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Who is the great king? Who is the great king? Jesus. I know we're not used to back and forth, but yeah, you're right on that. You've class you passed. Jesus is the great king. There is no other. And therefore, the city, Zion, Jerusalem, is whose city? It's Jesus's city. It's the city of the great king. It's the city of Jesus. 
And we saw last Lord's Day that God has not given up on Zion. Jesus has not given up on Zion, on Jerusalem. From Isaiah, we saw that Jesus loves Jerusalem. And of course, again, I want to reiterate, it's not per se the dirt, it's not the hill, for even one day that will all be burned up along with the rest of the earth and there will be a new Jerusalem. But Jesus is going to return to this earth. He is going to come again to Jerusalem and he is going to come to his people again. And when we speak of the city, of course, again, we're not talking literally only of the walls. It's the people. And it not only represents the people who resided within the walls. Some of us know the painful experience in traveling. Here we are from New Hampshire, but if we travel to other parts of the country or the world, and people want to know where we're from, and you say Concord, they have no clue. You say New Hampshire, they have no idea. And so you say Boston, oh, And so whether you like it or not, if you travel, you have to be associated with Boston. You live in the area of Boston. That's the way it is. You probably root for Boston sports teams. So the city that's in a significant area, it represents not only the actual physical square miles of the city itself, but the city stands for the capital, the center of that region, of that people. And so it is with Jerusalem. It is the capital city of Israel and Judah, and it is the city of the great king. Jesus loves Jerusalem. He will not be silent. He will not be quiet. He will continue interceding until the city one day is a cause for praise. It is a place of peace. He loves Jerusalem. And think of it as we come to our text this morning, since he was a little boy, Since he first began to hear from his godly father and mother the scriptures read and the truths of the scripture, as he, from his earliest days, began to understand who he was. And he is the incarnate son of God, one person, two natures, divine and human. And in his pertaining to his human nature, he really is human fully. And he comes to learn and understand who he is. He sits in the synagogue, learns under his father, riveted by all of the prophets and what they had to say about the coming day because he understands he is the coming king. His whole life, he's looked forward to the day when he will be reunited with the city and the city will welcome him and he will sit on the throne And he will love and care for and rule over his people and redeem them. He understands all of the scriptures in relation to Jerusalem and her Messiah, the servant of the Lord, pertains to him. And he's been looking forward and longing for the city all his life. But this time, this coming, he must first be rejected And it's not an accident, for that too was written in the prophets. Jesus repeatedly said, as recent as Matthew chapter 20, if you want to turn there, to verse 18, he's repeatedly said to his close disciples that it is necessary that he be crucified. He says in verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, the Messianic title, will continue will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, 
and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Where did he get that? From what we call the Old Testament, from the prophecies concerning the work of the Messiah, that at his first coming, he would deliver and save his people, as the angel announced, save his people from their sins. So he knows that he must be rejected. He knows that he must be scourged. He knows that he must be crucified, atoned for the sins of his people. He loves Jerusalem, and yet his heart grieves over Jerusalem's condition. She will reject him. The city will reject him. And in holiness and justice, Jesus will, in holy zeal, condemn the city. Not permanently, not without any end, but until that day prophesied in Zechariah chapter 12, where Jesus will once again come to the city in that future day, surrounded by the nations who hate Jerusalem and her people. And in that day, God says, Zechariah 12, 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. That morning in that future day by those few remnant of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem that will remain, they will, by the Spirit of God, in that future day, when they see Jesus return, they will get it. They will understand, surely, he bore our transgressions. They will essentially pray, Isaiah 53, they will confess their sins and confess Jesus as their rightful king all along. This is the background. This is the, the Old Testament and the future context of what's going on as Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the last days before his death and resurrection. The passage we've read this morning in chapter 21, verses 18 through 22 takes place on the day after what is typically called the triumphal entry. It's kind of a cruel title. They hailed him as King Hosanna to the son of David, they cried, but in reality Jesus knows that he's going to be rejected. So he's come to the city in chapter 21. He has cleared out and cleansed the temple in chapter 21, verse 12. And this is the next day, the following day. Jesus has stayed outside the city, not far, just in Bethany, just just on the outskirts of town. The area is full of people, pilgrims who have come. The streets are full, houses are full. Everybody has their relatives staying with them, and tensions are running high. And and uh, but it's it's a it's a throng of people. Um, hundreds of thousands of people are there. And on the next morning along with many others who are going into the city, Jesus is with his disciples. And we learn in chapter 21, verse 18, in the morning when he was returning to the city, to Jerusalem, he became hungry. 
Let's just pause there. Is that your view of Jesus? That when he got up in the morning, he knew what it was to be hungry, just like you know what it is to be hungry? That's our Lord. When he took on flesh, the eternal Son of God, conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, not ceasing to be divine, for God cannot cease to be who he is, but he took to himself... In the mystery of the incarnation, a true and thorough human nature, not kind of a human nature, not, listen, not a different human nature from yours and mine, except for sinless. He has a body. He has guts. He has a metabolism. He needs sleep and he needs food. And he's been ministering tirelessly. The day before was a day of incredible activity he cleans house literally the house of the lord he's raising his voice he's he's interacting with false teachers he's healing blind and lame he's ministering constantly he's exhausted this is only the second day if you will of this amazing week so he's hungry Uh, there's no dunkin donuts to pull into Uh, There's no refrigeration, no grocery store. But what they had in those days, in that culture, in that time, are fig trees. Fig trees provided fruit. And they were, fig trees were common. They typically bore fruit a couple times a year. We learn elsewhere in the Gospels that this was not the season for figs, for the fruit itself. But these trees bore these figs that were the food of the populace. You don't have, you talk about supply chain, you don't really have much of a supply chain except rain and a few fruit trees. You have grapes, you have figs, you have olives, a few basic sources of food. And figs were one of the most common, readily available, and dare I say nutritious, Maybe not delicious, but nutritious. And so Jesus is hungry. He's hungry, and he sees a fig tree. Now, just before we go further, I want to just pull back again, and I want to look at these verses, verses 18 through 22, and Jesus' interaction with the fig tree. And I want to acknowledge that maybe we have at least two questions I'm just going to kind of put them out there. The first is, what does Jesus have against fig trees? Um, I mean, he's kind of harsh, isn't he? I mean, you go to a fig tree, it's not even in season, it's not even the season for figs, and and man, he uh, curses that fig tree, and it's never going to bear fruit again. And the next day, we learn in the Gospel of Mark that the fig tree is withered up, dead as a tree would look in January in New Hampshire. So what does Jesus have against fig trees, maybe is our first question. The second, more looming question that I want to ask you just to set aside for a moment is, wow, what does Jesus mean by telling us that, verse 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, 
be taken up and cast in the sea, it'll happen. And all things you ask in prayer, you will receive. Our question is, is that really, is Jesus telling, writing a blank check? And, and is he saying that if we only believe enough? Because that's a pressing question for a lot of us here this morning. Well, we're going to examine that in a few moments. But first, I want, right now, I want to, I want to, having addressed and acknowledged those questions in the room, I want to ask, what is this passage about? Has the Holy Spirit in this account of the last days of our Lord in Jerusalem, the cleansing of the temple, the confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, is, is the Holy Spirit kind of gotten off the narrative here? He's kind of, kind of just gone over the side and just tried to, well, I don't know where to fit that in, so I'm going to plop it right there. Of course not. Of course not. This passage is about fruit and not ultimately figs. It's about spiritual fruit. The king is coming to the city, and the king king is coming to look for fruit. In other words, it's time for fruit inspection, spiritual fruit inspection. Jesus is still ministering mercy and grace to the most humble and lowly and needy. He, when we cleanse the temple, remember that even as he's judging the people, the leaders, and so forth, the most humble and earnest and sincere, he's ministering to them. So his problem is not with every single individual in the city. His problem is with the hypocrites, with the religious establishment who have made the worship of God into a business. Do we know anything about that these days? That's his problem. And he's come looking for those who will worship God in spirit and in truth. And instead he's come and found those presuming to worship God in falsehood and heartlessness. It's just business. It's just gross man-centered religiosity. And the king has come for fruit inspection and what he is finding is rotten fruit. When God had been gracious and poured out on his people mercy upon mercy, gave them the word of God among all the nations on earth, and the king comes and he finds no spiritual fruit, and whatever fruit there is, is rotten. Figs were so basic to the population. Habakkuk 3.17, I actually have this verse in a frame that Carissa gave me many, many years ago. Though the fig tree should not blossom and though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should, not, should fail and the fields of the produce fields produce no food, though the flock should not Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. If the fig tree did not blossom and did not bear fruit, it was devastating for the people. It was a basic food item. But here, the fig tree is an illustration of Jerusalem and Israel. That's what's going on. 
The king's messenger, Jesus' messenger, who was that? John the Baptist. Do you remember all the way back at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew? In chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where we learn that when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, oh great, now we're going to have the influential guys with us. Uh Uh-uh. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, listen, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's all the way back in Matthew chapter 3. God had sent before his son a messenger, a herald, who was to announce the coming of the king and give the people, give the leadership of Israel an opportunity to get their house in order, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There was plenty of time. Three years of Jesus' ministry after the preaching of John the Baptist, the preaching of Jesus himself, plenty of time for the king to come to his capital city and to find there earnest, humble, sincere, reverent, sin-shunning worship. But instead, he comes and he finds, even after he cleansed the temple on multiple occasions, he still finds gross, hypocritical, man-centered, man-concerned worship. It's fruit inspection time. And though John the Baptist had called for fruit in keeping with repentance, no such fruit was found by Jesus when he came. And so the fig tree is a parable. It's an illustration And we know that this is not just an off-the-point kind of curiosity placed there by the Holy Spirit. There's a focus on fruit in the entirety of chapter 21. Just cheat, if you will, and look ahead to verse 21. It's never cheating in your Bible when you look ahead and find out the end of the story. You're allowed to do that. In fact, you should. But Jesus there says... He talks, he'll give a parable, and we'll examine this in perhaps next week. He gives a parable in chapter 21, verse 23, of a vineyard and of a king or owner who sends his son ultimately and looking for fruit from the vineyard. Jesus is making it clear that God is looking for fruit, spiritual fruit, the fruit of sincerity and truth and love and worship and he's not finding it and so Jesus goes to the fig tree he has nothing against the poor fig tree but it is a illustration and a powerful one the fig tree was made by God when Jesus approaches that fig tree which is leaved out the fig tree is in the presence of of its creator, of its master, of its Lord. The desire of Jesus was reasonable. He was hungry. And he comes to the fig tree, and the fig tree, which was created by Christ and made for mankind, has no fruit to give to its owner, to its creator, to its king. And the judgment is severe. 
the potential for bearing fruit will be taken away. And that particular fig tree never bore another fig. In fact, apparently it just died. And all it was was a shell. It was like one of those ash trees that we see around, all around the area. It's, it, it is sad. I, I like trees. Uh, I don't hug them, but I like trees. And ash trees are a beautiful tree. And if you notice, anywhere you drive in this area, you will see in the woods these large, stately trees that have no leaves left, no bark, and they're the ash trees that have been killed by the ash borer beetle. That fig tree withered not over a series of years or months or weeks, but at once, Matthew says, and we learn from the Gospel of Mark, it was, it was overnight. And some say, oh, now there's, a, there's an inconsistency. Why? Um, actually, trees, you know, are actually really tough. It's actually really hard to kill a tree. If you tried to clear any land on your property and you've cut down the trees, now if it's a pine tree, no stems are going to come up. But if it's an oak, if it's a beech, if it's a maple, what are you going to have? If you cut that down, you're going to have suckers coming up all over the place. And then you're going to you're going to have you cut down the tree, but now you've got like 20 little trees coming up all around the stump. It's actually very, very hard to kill a tree. We have a beech tree out in front of uh, our barn that I cut uh, about two feet off the ground. It was about that big. And, and beeches are particularly notable for, doesn't matter how you cut them down, they will sprout up again. And sure enough, this stump about two feet off the ground has little twigs and little leaves coming out. This tree that was huge has this little branching out. My point is, it's actually very difficult for a tree to wither and die. You have to work hard at it. You probably have to root it right out with a tractor or a loader, or you have to bring a stump grinder. It's not easy. God made trees hardy. And think about it. This fig tree is in a climate with, that rarely has rain. It's under the sun all the time. So this fig tree is a very hardy, drought-resistant kind of plant. It's hard to kill a fig tree. And Jesus, on this morning, goes to look for fruit, finds none, curses it. It never will bear any fruit. And not only does it not bear any fruit, but overnight, as the disciples come the next morning, it is not only lacking fruit, it it is withered. It is clearly dead in an instant. Mark chapter 11, verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots So Matthew is just condensing this and just saying at once and within 24 hours is, is at once. It's, it's in keeping with what Matthew is saying. The point is that the tree withered overnight because it was in the presence of its creator, of its king, the king and creator with authority to give life and to take life, to give blessing 
and to give curse. He has the authority. He has the power. The tree will wither overnight. And Jerusalem and the great temple complex built by Herod still undergoing completion in the days of Jesus, but nearing completion, this massive temple complex built by Herod will be utterly demolished in a few short years by the Romans in 70 AD. No one would have thought that could happen. Even if you tried, it was such a massive temple complex and Herod was known not only in Israel, but throughout the Roman Empire. Herod the Great, who was not alive at the time of Jesus, but had started this project, he was renowned for these building projects. No one would think that such a massive undertaking could be demolished down to nothing And that's exactly what happened. And why? Because the city rejected her king on its first, on his first coming, and the king pronounced judgment. And that judgment is there till this day. Jerusalem at present is has a measure of peace in its history, and we're thankful for that. But we all know that there's one place on the planet that is a powder keg that could go off at any moment. And where is it? Jerusalem. So Jesus has the authority to be able to bless and to curse. And just as the tree would wither overnight and not bear fruit because of Israel's rejection of her king, there would be until his second coming no fruit. There would be a judgment. There would be a judgment upon Israel and upon the city. Well, the disciples aren't picking up on this. They're just amazed. Verse 20, they are amazed and ask, how did the fig tree wither all at once? How, how does, how, we, Lord, we were just here yesterday. How, how, how did this happen? How can this, this doesn't happen. They've These are grown men. They've seen a lot of fig trees. Their whole life they've spent eating figs. They they know how fig trees work. They don't wither overnight. They don't, even if they're dying, they do not die overnight from the root up. How can this happen? I don't know about you, but I'm frustrated. What do you mean, how can this happen? Not long before, I mean, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Guys, Lazarus is walking because Jesus said, rise. What do you mean, how's the fig tree wither? Because Jesus said, you're not going to bear any fruit. Shouldn't be surprising. Jesus has said, be healed. Jesus has said to demons, be cast out. Jesus has said to lame men, walk. Jesus has said to the dead, rise. And we're thinking, ha. Oy vey. I'm not Jewish, but you know, my Jewish friends would say, oy vey. I mean, why are you amazed, Peter? Why are the disciples amazed? Haven't you got it by now? You've seen for three years what Jesus can do with a word, stilling a storm, 
causing it to cease, the waves to be still. Why are you amazed after all of that, that when Jesus is hungry, doesn't find figs, and says, that's your last opportunity, fig tree, why are you amazed that the tree is dead? It's very frustrating. I find it frustrating. But Jesus replies gently. And we're going to talk in a moment, we're going to look at a moment together what Jesus teaches about prayer. But the Holy Spirit at this portion in the Gospel of Matthew is not taking us off on a side journey on a teaching on prayer. Make no mistake, he has our focus riveted on our Lord. It's exasperating. He's hungry. He goes to the fig tree. He has a long day of ministry ahead of him, and he just wants a fig. He just wants something to nourish himself, and he doesn't find any. And not only does he not find any fruit, but his disciples, who of all people should know the authority by now that he has, they're wondering, how'd you do that? But Jesus isn't exasperated. Jesus is not impatient. Jesus is not angry with them. If it were me, I'd turn around after cursing the fig tree and I'd curse them. You say, well, you're mean. I know. Selfish. Oh, come on. You've never been snippy with somebody who didn't understand what was going on in the context, right? That's how we are. Even the most patient of us, but our Lord. His response is amazing. Rather than respond with exasperation, you fools. You've been with me all this time. What do you mean how? Instead of that, he condescends to minister to them and prepares them for the apostolic ministry they will have ahead. I want you to think about this. The king is in the process of being rejected He's exhausted by ministry and and has much ministry ahead of him. He's on his way to being beaten, betrayed, beaten, scourged, crucified. And he is under such control in his holy character that he can not only, not only does he bear with the weak faith of his disciples in this moment where he could be so focused on self, and in my mind, justly so. In that moment, when their question must just have hurt, what do you mean how? Instead, he equips them. He equips them for what they will need in the days ahead. This is amazing. It's amazing. The Lord here exposes my self-preoccupation, perhaps yours. He's not fixated on himself or how his disciples by now should know. He, He bears with their stupidity and their unbelief. 
I don't think stupidity is too strong of a word. I'm not trying to be unkind, but again, they've seen Jesus raise people from the dead with his word. Why is it hard for a fig tree to wither with a word? They still don't get it. They know who he is, but they still don't really know who he is. They should know who he is. They're without excuse. And Jesus, instead of just saying, that's it, guys. I mean, here I am. You saw me yesterday. I had a long day. I'm exhausted. I just wanted a fig tree. And now you're wondering about this. I mean, that could be enough to derail most of us, if not all of us. But not only does he not respond with anger, not only is he patient, but he goes beyond that and he thinks of them and he thinks of what they will need and what they will need in the coming days is the certainty that as his ambassadors, as his apostles, as they trust in him as their king, that whatever they pray on behalf of the mission, on behalf of their king and fulfilling his service, they will have it. This is the power, this is the ability that the apostles will have and all of Christ's people. But this passage is horribly abused and can lead to some great mischief. It may be even cause here this morning a misunderstanding of the passage or a misteaching of it for some real cynicism maybe here this morning. Jesus says, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will believe. And some of you here have been walking with God, maybe trusted in Christ, but you really prayed with faith and sincerity that someone would be healed, and they weren't. What's going on? I remember praying for my grandmother as a little boy, my grandma Jane. We prayed for her almost every day, my brother and I with my parents. And I'll, I've told you this, but I'll never forget one Easter when Grandma Jane came to church with us, heard the gospel, trusted in Christ. Those prayers came true. And there was fruit and evidence in her life before she died of cancer and went to be with the Lord. However, there are others in my life that I have prayed for since I was a little boy. And have since passed. And I have no evidence that they ever trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Was the problem belief? Not enough faith? Do you see? What I'm trying to help you here is, how do we understand this? What is Jesus saying? And as everywhere in the scriptures, context, context, context. Don't lift what Jesus is teaching out of this passage and just plop it on a poster somewhere. Keep your mind fixated on where the Holy Spirit, who is the author of this gospel ultimately, wants you to be focused. And what he wants you to be focused on is the absolute power and authority of God and your King, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing too difficult for him. There is nothing amazing. Jeremiah says plainly, the prophet Jeremiah, 
Oh, Lord, there is nothing too difficult for you. And that's what Jesus is impressing upon his disciples. And we need to have impressed upon our hearts this morning. There is no checking here of the power of God. There is no limit because there is no limit. Whatever God wants to do, he can do. He can save who he wants to save. He can heal who he wants to heal. He can put in office who he wants to put in office. He can do whatever he wills in heaven or on earth. That's the point, is the power of Christ, the ability of Christ. They try to help you a little bit with verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree. Now, pause. Is he really saying that the disciples, after he rises from the dead, are going to go around and get their kicks out of cursing fig trees so they don't have figs? Of course not. I mean, people are not going to go around. Well, you can tell the disciples here, there's a whole lot of dead fig trees around. So he's not saying literally, now this is going to be part of your apostolic mission. You're going to go around cursing fig trees. You'll do just like I did. No, 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 no. In other words, it was amazing. This, this healthy fig tree with leaves, Jesus utters a word, says that it will not bear fruit, and within hours it is dead. That is amazing. Only Jesus, only God has that kind of power. And Jesus is saying, you will, if you have faith, well, faith in what? What is the faith that the Holy Spirit is after here in the Gospel of Matthew? A faith that you can have such and such? A faith that you can do such and such? No, it is the Gospel of Matthew, the Holy Spirit. What is he calling us to do? Is to believe and trust who the Spirit is testifying that Jesus is. He is the eternal incarnate Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Bow before Him, worship Him, adore Him, trust Him. That's the faith. I have never had faith For our church, for example, you ask me, how big is our church going to be? Am I supposed to say, well, I have faith that it's going to be? No. I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, am I a man of small faith because of that? No. I've never been told in the Bible exactly how large, for example, the church that I should pastor should be. It should be. No, I've never been told that. But what I have been told repeatedly in the scriptures is about the glory and the goodness and the grandeur and the purity and the character and the power and the majesty of my Lord Jesus Christ. And that whatever he calls me to and you to as his servants that he's called you to in his name to do that he will provide anything and everything that you need isn't this the promise of philippians chapter 4 19 and my god will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in christ jesus it's another one of those verses that we 
very quickly just kind of pull right out of the context, again, plop on our wall or on our Facebook page or whatever the case may be. That's a great verse, but it ultimately, believer, individual, actually wasn't given to you. It was given, the you there is plural. Paul's writing to a church in Philippi, and he's calling them to give as God has called them to give. And for some of them, it is very difficult because they're not giving out of their excess. They're giving out of what they, they know that they'll need for other things. And, and they're wondering how they can fulfill the mission, the gospel mission and support that God has called them to. And in that context of faithfulness, of obedience, in generous giving unto the Lord, It's in that context that Paul and the Holy Spirit ultimately says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus had said to Peter, chapter 16, verse 18 of Matthew, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. These apostles are going to be the first preachers of the gospel, first in Jerusalem and in Judea, which is absolutely hostile to the gospel and to Christ. And they are going to be working on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ to found churches in a completely hostile culture, so much so that the first several hundred years of the founding of the church will be a bloodbath as they pray and seek for churches to be established and and equipped in the context of severe persecution under people of the likes of the name, maybe you've heard Nero, Diocletian, there'll be a bloodbath. All hell will be against the apostles and those who are in the process of building the church. All hell will be against the gates of Hades, will be against believers. And Jesus is putting steel in the backbone of his disciples, promising them that whatever they are called to as they serve their king, whatever it is, Even if it is moving a mountain, verse 21, no problem. It's another helpful insight. Is there any any recording of the apostles actually ever saying to a mountain, be removed and thrown into the sea? Did they ever? No. Why? Because they understand. Jesus is not writing a blank check saying, you know, whatever, whatever you want. You know what? If you just see your kicks, you want Mount Carmel thrown in the sea, pray for it. It'll happen. No. The focus is on the impossibility, seeming impossibility of the task. It's seemingly impossible for a fig tree to wither overnight, but Jesus has the authority to speak a word and is withered. The apostles, as they fulfill the mission of Christ and as they call upon Christ saying, Lord, you said you would build your church. We don't know how in a context like this it's going to happen, but oh Lord, you said you would build your church. So we pray, oh God, 
convert men and women, raise up leaders in the church, build your church, even though men and women are being slaughtered in the churches. Oh God, oh Christ. And here we are today. There may be an illusion here, I wonder. I just hap- we happen to be in our study in 1 Kings uh, right after the scene on Mount Carmel where there's the showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Right, you know that scene? And the altar and Elijah soaks the altar with water and the Baal, prophets of Baal are gashing themselves, calling upon Baal and Baal isn't doing anything. And it's great. Elijah makes fun of Baal, says maybe he's in the, maybe he's in the bathroom, maybe he's occupied. You see, that's in the Bible. Yes, it's in the Bible. God mocks false gods and idols and it's, it's a great account. Elijah, after the God does cause fire to come down, and then it's clear that there's only one God, the true God, the God of the scriptures. Elijah then goes up and he prays because there hasn't been rain for three and a half years. Three and a half years, there's been no rain. Why? Because of the word of the Lord through the prophet Elijah. God says there shall be no rain. There's no rain, no dew, nothing for three and a half years. But God had promised in the, through his servant Moses, that when his people turned to him in repentance, that he would bless them. And so Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he gets down on his knees and his head in the ground between his knees, and he prays. And what does he pray for? He prays for rain. Why? Because it was the revealed will of God to bless his people with rain. He wasn't making this up. He was functioning within his God-given task as a prophet, and so he prays for rain. It hasn't rained for three and a half years. And you see a man up on a hill in his knees praying for rain, and you think, okay. But he prays, and a little cloud shows up, and it turns into a larger cloud, and then there's a deluge. Jesus is saying, essentially, guys, When you're serving me, whatever I call you to and whatever is within the will of God and is clearly within what I want you to do, whatever you need for that, when it comes to it and you're you're in that place of need, I have the authority with my father that not only can I cause a little cloud to come and water the land, but if, if it were relevant, you could pray and I could take the whole of Mount Carmel and toss it into the Mediterranean Sea. That's the lesson. There is nothing too difficult for our God. I, I do believe that we are sitting, I'm standing, but you're sitting in an illustration of that this morning. I don't want to make too much of it, but for 12 years of the existence of this church, we had no building. We met in various schools, and we weren't focused on a building. If you're here lately, you hear us talking about a building. Are we focused on the building? No. We're not focused on a building. We we did 12 years without a building. We ministered, and we were thankful. But we understood that if we were going to have a public witness and an opportunity to share the gospel and to grow, it likely seemed best, especially in days after covid that we'd have a building, but we didn't have the kinds of resources. 
property around here, anything close remotely that would provide for us over a million dollars and to build upwards of $2 million. And we prayed, but what did we pray on? Oh, Lord, we believe we can have this kind of... No, we just, we prayed. Here's what we prayed. Oh, God, in Philippians 4.19, you say that you'll supply all our needs. We live in New Hampshire. It's 10 below in February. This is a need. We need a place to assemble. We need a place where our lease won't run out. We need a place where the government can't say... Because of lease arrangements, you got to get out. Oh God, if we're going to worship as you've called us to and assemble as you've called us to, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, we need a place. And here we are this morning. That's the kind of thing. I, I find that amazing what God has done. You can take this as a name it and claim it promise think you're going to be disappointed in fact I know you are and actually it's going to lead to some people being disillusioned again there may be some young people here who are disillusioned I I thought Jesus said I could pray for whatever I want and I've been praying for that and I haven't seen the answer I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here he's called you to be faithful he's called you to be obedient he's called you to do whatever your father and he is calling you to do And he is saying to his disciples, to his apostles, and to all his believers, whatever situation you are in where you are serving me and you are presented with seemingly impossible circumstances, nothing's impossible for me. The issue, the focus is on not the nature ultimately of our faith, The focus is not ultimately on the nature of our prayer. Though you learn here, we must pray. We should not expect anything if we don't pray. But the focus is on the authority and the power of our Lord. But I want to leave you this morning where we started, in a sense. It's the character and the majesty of our gracious King. That he's tired and hungry And the very men who should know him and understand the best are asking him, how did you do that? And such is the character of your Lord, of your Savior and of mine, that he not only bears with them, but he takes the moment to equip their faith for what lies ahead. What a Savior. What a savior. Let's pray. Jesus, there's no one like you. And we take heart this morning that you're so gentle, so forgiving, so long-suffering. Because we're just like your disciples. You've proven your power to us. You've proven your faithfulness. You've proven your kindness and Yet again and again, sometimes we wonder, how can that be done? Forgive us, Lord, for our unbelief. Forgive us when our unbelief turns into prayerlessness. Renew the hearts of your people this morning. And most of all, fix our hearts and our minds on you.
We love you, Lord. We love you for all that you did for us and all that you're doing for us now. And we want to confess in your presence this morning that whatever you call us to, wherever you send us, whatever circumstances we are presented with, that nothing, absolutely nothing, is too difficult for you. If only we will ask. And we do so now in your name. Amen.